2 Kings chapter 7. We're in a series called Destructive Lifestyles, um, inviting you to get some destructive habits into your life. Yes, not often you hear that maybe from in, in church, but you need to embrace some destructive lifestyles and live, live them to the max. Um, the, the purpose of that is this is in the context of spiritual warfare, which frequently is spoken of as something that is done just in prayer. It is done in prayer. It is done in deliverance ministry, but I, we, I'm trying to stretch your thinking a little bit into 24-7 how we live and how that then is spiritual warfare all the time because two kingdoms have clashed. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of darkness has gone bonkers. That's why all these demons manifested whenever Jesus walked the earth because the kingdom of God had come and there was a response from the darkness. So we're looking at at, at lifestyles then that allow God's people every moment of every day to be continually pushing back that darkness and destroying the grip that it has. And they're very simple things. They're maybe slightly surprising, some of them. The first one we looked at was in 1 Samuel. Uh, that was a verse just last week that from Psalm 68, actually, that, that, that hung over the whole thing. May God arise, may his enemies be scattered. So when I live, when we live lives that, that allow God to arise within us, the enemy is scattered. And our focus is not on the enemy. Our focus is on God. Our focus is on the king at all times. And the enemy getting trampled and and chased is collateral, wonderful benefit. So may God arise, may his enemies be scattered. The first destructive lifestyle we looked at a few weeks ago was a lifestyle of sacrifice. And that was from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, where we read that while Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines. As we're singing in here, for example, or as we're sacrificially given of our time, given of our energy, given of our gifts, as we, as we bring a living sacrifice to God, God thunders against the enemy while we do that. Uh, the second one last week uh, is, was forgiveness. Again, we don't maybe think of forgiveness as spiritual warfare, but last week I think was a, was a just seemed like a moment, if you know what I mean, a moment. <laughs> And we talked about forgiveness and based that from 2 Corinthians 2, where Paul says, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us. In other words, when we don't forgive, Satan gets an advantage. And when we live lives of forgiveness, we don't give him that advantage. We are engaging in spiritual warfare by forgiving people. Powerful. And number three today, there'll probably be five or six. Aaron's actually going to do one on praise sometime in the next, in the next couple of weeks. Praise as a, as a destructive lifestyle. Looking forward to that. No pressure. Um, but the, the, the one I want to linger on this morning is advance. In other words, moving forwards. Moving forwards. And I want to look at two stories today where, where people moved forwards and see how God then acted when they just stepped forward in their weakness and in their smallness, but in their faith. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, God says to the people, you have stayed long enough at this mountain, break camp and advance, move forward. And the result of that, he, he goes on to say, the Lord your God has given you the land, go up and take possession of it, 
as the Lord, the God of your ancestors told you, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. So lifestyle number three, destructive lifestyle for you to embrace is advancing, moving forwards. The two stories I want to look at, one of them is in 2 Kings chapter 7. It's a funny little story. I don't know what it would have looked like. But it says in verse 3, there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. The city is Samaria. The city is under siege. The, the, the conditions that the people are living in is described at the end of chapter 6. It's pretty horrendous what they're eating, uh, how they're surviving. And outside of the city of Samaria, there are four lepers. In verse 3, they said to each other, Why do we stay here until we die? Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we will die. So in other words, if we go into the city, we're going to die. And if we stay here, we're going to die. So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans. That's the enemy. Let's go over to the camp of the enemy and surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, we die. So basically, we're going to the city, we're going to die. We stay here, we're going to die. We go over there and we might die. So, so the outlook is pretty bleak. But the question that they posed was, why are we sitting here until we die? Now, at dusk, they got up and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, not a man was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army, so that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents and their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp and entered one of their tents. They ate and drank and carried away silver, gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. Funny little story. Four dead men walking. If you're a leper, you're on death row. There's no way back. And the four of them are sitting there. You know, lepers were put outside the city so that they could not infect anyone else. But they would have created a little sort of community among themselves, the four of them outside the city. And they sit and have this discussion. And their, their conclusion is, let's get up and let's walk over to the enemy camp. Now, I want you to get this all and bring this all bang up to September 2019. Let's get up and go to the enemy camp. Let's advance, right? Let's move forward. We could stay here in our tent, they say, basically. We could stay here in our tent. We're dying. We could just comfort one another during that process and hope for the best. Um, but we could also get up and move forwards and see what happens. And can you picture the four of them? Now, leprosy obviously was and is horrendous, and it, it particularly affected hands and feet. Okay, so every step they were taking was painful. Every single step. They didn't want to walk anywhere. 
and the four of them get up and they maybe they maybe can hardly even walk properly they're probably shuffling their it was like a scene from some sort of horror movie as the four of them go along shuffling their feet along the ground and trying to trying to get to the camp of the enemy it's it's the very picture of weakness can you see it can you see the four of them it's comical as they just shuffle this massive enemy you know sitting in you know in their tents and in their camp have besieged the city for months and these four guys are shuffling towards them in the darkness but what the enemy does not know is that god has one of these okay you've got a volume button in heaven i don't know who originally a few different places that i've read about this passage and a few people have have said this somebody came up with it originally and i don't know who it is to give credit to them but god has a volume button in heaven yeah and this one this one goes right up to 11 because this is rock and roll okay 10 10 is not high enough there's got to be an extra one but God has this volume button in heaven. And what God does is, as those four half-dead men shuffle through the darkness towards the enemy camp, God goes to the, the technical AV room in heaven and he starts to turn up the volume. And while they're shuffling through the ground and you can hear stones moving around and a bit of dirt moving and you can hear them groaning with every step, you know, just... You know, the way you get out of bed in the morning once you get over 40. And they're just moaning and groaning and shuffling along. But God turns up the volume and what the enemy hears, they don't hear four people. They hear armies. In fact, they hear armies so loud and threatening that they think there are three nations attacking them. It says in verse 6, The enemy said to each other, look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. They they listen out and they hear, they know Israel's coming and they think, well, the Hittites have joined in and the Egyptians have joined in and we're going to get absolutely whooped. It's comical because these four lads and yet in, in the enemy camp there is panic and there is terror because they are hearing a multitude because God with a big smile on his face just ratches up and amplifies and amplifies and amplifies that sound. Do you know what? God turns up the volume, folks, of every act of faith that we engage in. There's, there's a sort of a somewhere between here and his throne. It's maybe Jesus who intercedes at his right hand on our behalf. And we pray our feeble prayers. But he sees our heart and, and he takes them. And before, before they go to the Father, it's like he amplifies them. He turns them up. He makes them right. I, I've said to a couple of people in the last couple of weeks... Um, because of things that are, that are happening, that, that God maybe hasn't so much paid attention to the prayers of our lips as he has heard the cry of our hearts. Sometimes our lips form words that aren't just fully in keeping with his will, but he sees the heart and he says, you want that? You're praying about that? Well, I'm going to amplify that. I'm going to give you this. <laughs> I see your heart and I'm going to give you this amazing that's what that's what happens as we as we do these steps of faith these little acts these little things that we do god turns them up turns them up turns them up and the enemy flees do you see that advancing is an act of warfare sitting in the tent and feeling sorry for yourself is not an act of warfare advancing getting up and even if it's painful getting up and walking forward towards the camp of the enemy and we must be advancing into enemy territory we must 
One of the things that you learn whenever you advance into enemy territory is you see how scared he really is. We have this thing where we think to ourselves, wow, the enemy's massive and he's going to whoop us if we go anywhere near him. But in fact, the enemy is terrified of us. And you will read this in other places in the Old Testament as well. Whenever you read of the story of the spies going to Rahab in Jericho, they go to to check out Jericho and they, they talk to Rahab and she says to them, when we heard of it, we heard about you, God's people, when we heard about you, our hearts melted in fear. This is the enemy speaking. She represents, although she helped them, she was from Jericho and she was telling them how the enemy thought about them. And she says to them, when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. In other words, they said, we're terrified of you because of your God. That's the enemy view of God's people. And we sometimes car a little bit. We sometimes hold back and stay in the tent thinking, oh, well, boys, it'll be tough, it'll be hard. There'll be an awful price to pay and it might hurt and bad things might happen. But all the while, the enemy's actually terrified. Terrified, okay? He is terrified of the people of God. Rahab says, I love that, that the way she describes it, our hearts melted in fear because of you. <laughs> Do you understand that? There's an enemy dug in in this town like a tick. You ever tried to pull a tick off a cat? Boy, is there some screaming done. Dug in like a tick, just holding on. But that enemy is terrified that the people of God would get up from the tent and move forwards. So we have, to, we have to move forward and advance in order to understand how scared he is. Whenever, whenever, what he, Gideon, whenever Gideon in Judges 7 is a wee bit apprehensive about going and, and taking on I think it's the Midianites, and God says to him, right, Gideon, you need to go and do a bit of eavesdropping. Okay? Eavesdropping is normally not a good thing. But on this occasion, he says, you go and you do some eavesdropping in the enemy camp. And he goes into the enemy camp it's really funny. I'm going to read it. He goes into the enemy camp in Joshua 7. God says to him, go down and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern people had settled in the valley thick as locusts. That's how many enemies there were. Camels could not be counted. And Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. So Gideon rocks up to this Midianite tent. And in the darkness, he, he listens. And in the tent, he hears this conversation. I had a dream. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. And Gideon's outside the tent listening to these two guys talking about Gideon's powerful sword and how God is going to hand Midian over to Gideon, if you can follow that. There's a song to be written there. But he's standing out and he's listening to how the enemy actually thinks about him. And I'm not encouraging you to listen to the enemy, but I'm encouraging you to know something. He's terrified. He's absolutely terrified because he knows how powerful our God is. So we advance in order to learn how scared the enemy is. And the second reason we need to advance into enemy territory is to plunder his provisions. 
Now just listen and think about this and make sure your head's switched on if you've been anywhere this last week and a half at all. They go into the house of the enemy. Okay? They go to the tent of the Syrians. And they go up there and when they go into the tent of the enemy, the place where the enemy formerly had his way and where the enemy formerly dwelt and called the shots, they go into the camp of the enemy and the enemy's gone. It's an empty house. Enemy's not there anymore. God chased the enemy away. (laughs) And when they get there, they find everything they need. And they sit in the tent in the house and they eat and they drink in the presence of God. And they take provision, they take clothes, and they take silver, and they take gold. They basically say, look at all of this, stupid enemy. Do you know, God loves to make a fool out of his enemies. He really does. He loves to make a fool. And everything they need is right there in the tent, and all they have to do is get up and shuffle over to it. That's it. God gets all the glory when four guys who can't walk walk into enemy territory and take the tent and everything in it. I love that. And then they go and tell the others. They realize they have to go back and tell everybody else that you know, they have a good feed and then they get a wee bit guilty and say, boys, we need to go back and tell the others that this is here. But I tell you what, folks, there's provision for God's people. There's provision for all people. But maybe in order to access it, we need to get up and advance. Okay? God has all the provision. If you, just, if you take this and you, you, you bring it on to a different level for a moment where there are people who are maybe not in a, in a siege in a terms of, of a famine for physical food, but basically they are surrounded by the enemy all the time. They can't go out or come in. They don't have what they need to survive. They're living in fear. There's a people, there's a community who are surrounded by an enemy camp. And God needs a people who will get up and walk forward because there's provision there that will be released, but it'll only be released when people get up and start taking steps of faith into the darkness towards the enemy. Love it. God has provision for his people, but if we're going to unlock that, four weak, dying men have to get up and walk towards it. Yeah. Advance, church, because when you advance, God turns it up, the enemy flees, and you find the provision and the redemption and the restoration that you need. So that's the first story that I wanted to, to point out to you this morning, that little story of the four lepers. The other one is one of my favorites. It's in 1 Samuel 14. I did share it with you three and a half years ago. I, ex- I expect you to remember every point and be able to <coughs> be able to fill in the blanks. The other story is about two men with one sword. Do you know there was a time almost four years ago when not many more than four lepers walked in here, into this town? You know? And God's moving. And God's working. But you always have got to be advancing. You've always got to be moving forward. You've always got to be progressing. First Samuel, a couple of verses from chapter 13 to, to set the background before we look at the, the point I want to make. It's the Philistines again. It's always the Philistines in Samuel. And in verse 5 of chapter 13, you've got a picture of, again, a massive army, huge opposition. 
The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's not good. That's like Gideon when he saw the, the, the land is th- covered with soldiers as thick as locusts. That's like the four lepers in the tent as they look across the valley or across the plain and they see the, the army all camped laying siege on the city. It's pretty grim. And in verse 6, look at the state of God's people. And you just bring this and apply this any way you need to. Verse 6, when the men of Israel, God's people, saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and in thickets, among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Some Hebrews, God's people, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. That's where you find Philistines. So God's people were hiding in bushes and behind rocks. They were so scared of the enemy. And some of them had just abandoned ship and deserted and gone over to the enemy. It's a pretty grim sight. They're quaking with fear. In verse 7, at the end of the verse, Saul remained, all the troops were with him, quaking with fear. Wow, that's pretty grim for the people of God. Easy to get overwhelmed by the enemy and easy to get fearful and easy to, to, to create a cave mentality of just hiding and looking after each other. But God wants advance. At the end of chapter 13, verse 19, we see that there's not a blacksmith in the whole land of Israel. Blacksmiths make weapons. There was nobody equipping God's people to fight. Again, just you bring that right up to speed and apply that. No one is equipping the people of God. And the reason that there's no blacksmiths is because the Philistines had took them all. And in... In this story that we're about to read, verse 22 of chapter 13, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or spear in his hand, only Saul and his son Jonathan. Two swords. In all of Israel, there are only two swords. Saul has one and Saul is a useless, useless brute, to put it mildly. He is a study in bad leadership. Saul has a sword And you read later on that he's basically sitting under a tree doing nothing. And Jonathan has a sword. There are no other swords in Israel. The Philistines, and this is important, the Philistines have all the weapons. They have a complete monopoly on iron and on blacksmiths and the Philistines have all the weapons. That's not good odds, okay? Two swords, one in the hand of a brute and against this mighty enemy. But in chapter 14, let me just read a few verses from chapter 14. It says in verse 1, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. So Jonathan gets fed up. You need to get fed up, okay? There needs to be some people in the church who are fed up. Fed up. And just, just looking at the state of God's people and thinking, oh, I'm sick of this. I'm going to get up and do something. And Jonathan has that mentality and he says, he says to, the, to the armor bearer, come and let us go over to the Philistine outpost. In other words, let's advance. Let's go straight towards the enemy. 
Let's walk into his territory and let's see what happens. And in the message version, and this doesn't sort of seem to make a big deal, but I just like what Jonathan says in the message version of, of, of verse 1. He says, come on. <laughs> All right, come on. And he says it again in verse 6. He says, come on. Again, he says to the, to the armor bearer, come on. Boy, we need a bit of come on in the church. We need people who are constantly sort of saying, pointing at something, saying, come on, come on. You know, come on. Jonathan didn't have a vision. He didn't have a word from God. He didn't have an angelic visitation. He didn't have a dream. What he had was the, the simple sense to look at the situation and say, this is not right. This is not honoring God whenever the Philistines are oppressing his people. This is not right. And I'm going to step out in faith and see what God does. Some of us, we sit around for ages waiting for a great big sign in the sky. And what we need to do maybe is just look at, at, at people's lives and at situations around us and say, this doesn't honor God. The enemy is having his way here. I'm fed up. Come on, let's see if we can do something about it. He trusted the character of God. He knew the God who split the Red Sea. He knew the God who split the Jordan. He knew the God who made the walls of Jericho fall down. He knew all of these stories. And he says, I'm going to go and see if God wants to do something like that again. And he says to his armor bearer as well in, in verse 6, lovely verse. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. God can do the business and it doesn't matter whether he has a vast army or four lepers or two men with one sword between them. You ever think it's a bit funny that Jonathan had an armor bearer? There wasn't much to carry. Okay, you know, it's not as if he was you know, carrying armloads of, of stuff. They had one sword, maybe a spear as well. And the armor bearer says in verse 7, Two powerful words to ever say to anyone who's got a bit of come on in them. The words go ahead. Love that. That's, that's liturgy, okay? <laughs> one person says come on and the other one says go ahead. That's liturgy. I used, when I grew up in the Church of Ireland, I didn't really like liturgy. When I became a Christian and I went back and read some of it, I actually realized some of that is powerful stuff. Some of those prayers and some of those words are really, really powerful. Liturgy, I like liturgy like this, you know. Come on, go ahead. That's the people you want to be having around you. Iron sharpens iron. You want people around you who will either be come on people or go ahead people. When it comes to actually getting out there and doing something for the glory of God. The armor bearer, I think, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in, in John's Gospel is called the Comforter. And the comforter means, in, in the original language, it means the one who was sent to the front line of the battle to bring help and support and strength and weapons. That's the comforter. Joins us on the front line, says, here, take this and use this, take this and use this. Here, you'll need that. That's the comforter. And that's this armor bearer. And they devise this battle plan. You can read about it later in, in verse 8 and beyond, where they just say, we're going to give up the element of surprise. We're going to show ourselves to the Philistines. And if they invite us up, if they call us up and say, come on up here, do we show you a thing or two? Then we will go forward. If they start coming down to us, then we're scundered. Basically, that was the plan. Totally it defied all logic. The only thing they had in their favor was the element of surprise. And they gave it up immediately. They just walked out into the open, you know, hi boys, what do we do? And the Philistines start shouting at them, mocking them. 
In verse 11, the Philistines say, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. You will get mocked when you advance, believe me, and brace yourself for it. Brace yourself for it. It will not be a bed of roses. As you get up and you, you know, shuffle your painful feet out of the tent and towards the enemy, you will be mocked. And the Philistines start spitting out mockery towards them, say, oh, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Brace yourself. The enemy will mock you. You see, you, as you read the story in chapter 14, you learn that these Philistines were on a half acre of ground. And there wasn't very many of them. The big army was behind them. And the enemy would say to you, what's the point in even taking a half acre? What's the big deal? Who cares? It's only a tiny, tiny little bit. Look at the army I have behind those guys on the half acre. Look at the, look at the red host that's against you. And they mock and they mock and they mock. Remember Nehemiah when he built the wall and somebody said to him, do you know what, see your wall, it's so useless and puny a fox could knock it down. The enemy will mock. In verse 13, it says that Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. They move forward on their hands and feet. I don't know what that speaks to you of, <laughs> but it makes me think of prayer. On their hands and feet, they crawled. They got down and they prayed. There's effort and there's prayer for the long haul. One of the things that I am so blessed by in this church is the way people pray. It is phenomenal, both on their own and together, praying and praying and praying, dug in for the long haul faithful crying on to God and against all the odds these two get up there they kill 20 Philistines in a half acre plot of ground and I want to look at what happens after that just as we finish off what happens when we advance what happens to the enemy when we advance first thing that happens I've got five just so you know the first thing that happens is God fights when we advance God fights Verse 15, at the end of the verse, it says it was a panic. There was a panic among the Philistine camp. It was a panic sent by God. When we advance, God starts to fight. It's almost as if he is sitting, waiting. And as soon as he sees faith, as soon as he sees someone who will get up off their backside and say, I'm not having this any longer. It's not right. I am moving forwards. God says, yes, I'm in. And he begins to fight. And history testifies again and again and again. The great moves of God happen when a small number of people just lay hold on God in faith and advance. It always, when you track it back, it always comes back to a small handful of people who just get something in them and lay hold on God and move forwards. And God loves that. He loves that. It's, it's a, whenever we do something as an act of faith, that then creates, almost creates a door for God's power then to flood through it. If we just sit and wait and ask God to show his power, it's limited. But I believe when we get up and advance, then, boom, there's a... There's a pathway for God's power to come. So that's the first thing, God fights. When we advance, second thing is that panic grips the kingdom of darkness. In verse 15, panic struck the whole army. 
those in the camp and field, those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook, just a, an earthquake as well, to make sure they got the point. Like the guys in uh, outside Samaria, the four lepers, whenever they moved forward, God sends panic through the enemy. Complete panic. The kingdom of darkness terrified, in this case, by two guys with one sword. Coming, climbing up a steep hill on their hands and knees to, to face 20 Philistines. The odds will never be good from a natural point of view. <laughs> but if we open our eyes and see God's perspective, the odds are always in our favor. The third thing that will happen when we start to advance is that we watch the enemy self-destruct. Love this because again, God makes a complete fool out of the enemy. Whenever Saul in verse 20 and his men assemble and come to the battle, they find the Philistines in total confusion, confusion, striking each other with their swords. And then you think, that's why God let them have all the swords. <laughs> Boom. Genius. You know, we in the natural will be thinking, oh boy, we need to get a blacksmith. We need to get swords. They've got all the swords. And God's like, no, 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 no. It's okay. Let them have the swords. They're going to use them to kill each other. Oh, come on. Yeah. That was a great opportunity for someone to shout, go ahead, but you missed it. Like, <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? We advance and God causes the enemy to begin to self-destruct. Again, that terror that goes through them. We give them far too much credit. Far too much credit. Fourth thing that happens whenever we advance is that Satan loses his power over people. Again, I love this in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, those Hebrews, now remember that's God's people, those, those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Bring that up to speed. The de-churched came back to church. Okay, Those who had some experience. These were the people of God. They had some experience of God in their history, in their past. But they had given up on it. And they had gone over and joined the Philistines. But when they see two men with one sword getting up and advancing. And they see what God is doing. They're like, I'm, I'm having some of that. I'm going back home. I'm going back home. I'm going back to church. I haven't been to church in 20 years, but I have seen a small group of people step forward in faith. I'm seeing God move and I'm in. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. That's what needs to happen. There are so many people in this land, in, in, in this, probably in, in the generation that I'm in, the, the, the sort of 30s, 40s, 50s, who were raised in church and have a background of church, but they've completely walked away from it. But you know what? If they see the power of God, they'll be like, I'm in. I'm coming back from the enemy camp and I'm coming back into the camp of God's people. And then the second thing that, that happens in those couple of verses as well, the church rises up. Do you remember those Israelites that were hiding in bushes and behind rocks, the people of God? Verse 22, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. Smoking the bandit quote right there, Mick. <laughs> yeah, they joined the battle. They'd been hiding. 
They've been doing nothing. They were the people of God. They didn't turn their back on God, but they were just hiding cave mentality. I'm just going to stay here and stay safe. But when they see a bit of whooping going on, and they see God's power moving against the enemy, again, they're up and they're like, I'm in. So it's not only about the, the de-churched being affected, it's, it's about the church as well, the wider church saying, look what's going on. Let's get involved and be part of that. Let's jump in and see if we can help because those boats are bringing in nets of fish and they need help to bring them in. They can't cope with it on their own. So let's get involved and help them out. You see, whenever you advance, you believe that. Do you actually believe that if one person, two people get up and step forward in faith, that many others will watch from a distance and then say, here, I'm in. You know, when, when metaphorically four lepers walked into this town about four years ago, not many of you were connected. But look what God's doing. Look at all the threads that God is weaving together as a result of that. Class. The last thing that happens whenever we advance is that tomorrow's leaders are born. I haven't in my notes and I'm going to tell you it before in case I forget it, but I was really challenged one night about... <clears throat> It was about November last year. I was having coffee with um, the guy that, that runs Forge in Europe, Alan McWilliam, Scottish guy who's, who's been a tremendous gift to me. And the guy that started it all, a fella called Alan Hirsch. And I was with the two of them. And Alan McWilliam, you know, I was talking to him just about busyness and about all the stuff that was going on and and he said to me he really challenged me and he said to me David he says you need to live a life that other people want it's no good if the way you live causes other people to look at you and say he's a good guy but I would never do what he does he said to me you need to live in a way that other people look at you and say I want to do that I want to do that and if as leaders we are on the ragged edge of exhaustion all the time, burnt out, fallen to bits, people will look at us and say, you know, I'm thankful for you, but I'm never going to do what you do because <laughs> I'd like to stay alive. But if we live in a way that causes people to look at us and say, I'm going to do it. I could do that. I want to do that. Real challenge. Whenever we get up and fight, tomorrow's leaders are born. We inspire others. And, and here I have, I have a question mark. On the, on the where I normally put my Bible reference because I don't have one for this because I'm, I'm conjecturing, I'm speculating at this point. But this is 1 Samuel 14. And I believe, and I genuinely believe this, that if we in our imagination go, I don't know how many miles away from this scene that we're at where Jonathan has won this victory. If we go to the house of a young boy who's maybe about 14 at the time, and he's sitting at the family dinner table and his dad is there and his older brothers are there and some of his brothers have already been in military service for Israel and they've come home from military service and they're sitting around dinner and they're telling battlefield stories. So you wouldn't believe this and you wouldn't believe that and this happened and that happened. And, and this kid at the other end of the table, he's just wide-eyed as kids are, just sparkly eyes taking it all in, these stories of battling against the Philistines and he's thinking, boy, I'd love to do that. 
I'd love to do that. And the next day when he's out doing his chores around the family farm and he's maybe out with the sheep and he sees a, a bear and he goes and he attacks the bear and he pretends the bear is a Philistine. Take that Philistine. He kills the Philistine. And other things that he does to protect the sheep. And in his, in his little sort of childish fantasy mind, he's, he's pretending that all the threats to the sheep are Philistines and he's killing them because he's like Jonathan. He's heard the story of Jonathan at the dinner table. He's heard of how Jonathan and the armor bearer went up that hill on their hands and knees and beat and killed 20 Philistines and then how God moved. And, he go, and he's inspired. He's like, I want to do that when I grow up. I want to do that when I grow up. You know who it is, don't you? It's David. It's Jesse's dinner table. And as we David, the shepherd boy, doing his chores around the farm and pretending that every threat is a Philistine and then sitting in the evening and listening to his older brothers come back from battle and tell stories of what God did and what God did in particular through Jonathan. And David just saying, boy, I'm going to do that. When I grow up, I'm going to do that. And a few chapters later, he kills Goliath. But I wonder, would David ever have done that And again, I'm moving beyond what I've got written in this book. (laughs) But would David have done that? Would he have had the courage to face Goliath if he hadn't heard the story of Jonathan, right on cue, of, of Jonathan's victory over the Philistines? Do you get me? I don't think it's too far of a stretch of the imagination. Is it any wonder David and Jonathan became such close friends? They both had the same vision. They were united. What they were different. One was a king's son. The other was a was a smelly shepherd boy from the from the sticks. But they had one passion and they were united in, in their vision to see God's people victorious. But I just love the thought that it was Jonathan's act of faith on this day that led to David's giant killing. In the future, folks, are we living lives and are we, are we advancing in a way that causes others to rise up and say, I could do that? Mm. I challenge you as I challenge myself, I could do that. Instead of looking at you and thinking, Oh, that person's whatever, and I could never do whatever. We need storytellers, we need worship leaders, we need prayer warriors, we need preachers and teachers, we need counselors, we need all sorts of people that others will look to and say, do you know what, I'm going to do that. I'm going to train and I'm going to do that. I'm going to learn from that person. I'm going to go and puke them and ask them to mentor me because I can do what they do. What's your half acre? Jonathan went and won this battle on a half acre of ground. What's your half acre? What is the thing that God's putting on your heart to say, you know, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, could it be a ministry? Could it be a, what could it be? You know, could it be a housing estate? Is it a town? Is it a council area? Is it a nation? Is it a neighbor? Is it a family member? Sports ministry, kids ministry, music ministry, teaching ministry, counseling, organizing, serving coffee, whatever. What half acre fights need to be picked in this town? Who will have the courage to walk onto a half acre of ground called poverty and say, I'm here to pick a fight with poverty. I'm here to pick a fight with unemployment. I'm here to pick a fight with teenage pregnancy. I'm here to pick a fight with the challenges of single parenthood. 
I'm here to pick a fight with hopelessness and depression and despair and anxiety and abuse and drugs and alcohol and witchcraft. I am here to pick a fight. All I've got's one sword and a fella who keeps on saying, go ahead. But I'm here to pick a fight because I believe in the character of God. You may think that you have no power, you may think you have no resources, but believe me, whenever four lepers get up and walk forward, God turns up the volume and the enemy gets seriously spooked. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the inspiration of these stories. Lord, that you can save whether by many or by few. Lord, will you make us a people of great faith? Will you make us a people whose lifestyle 24-7 is destructive towards the kingdom of darkness? We want to see your kingdom come, Lord. We want to see your church built. We want to see lives transformed and restored. We pray this every single week, Lord. We want to see it, Father. And Lord, I pray you would give us courage because there's a tent and the enemy has abandoned it and walked away from it in fear and you have kept it for us and there are resources in it, Lord, and we will walk forward and we will take them in the name of Jesus. Have your way, Lord. Make it a place of restoration and a place of provision a place of life and hope in the name of Jesus that a besieged town that is encircled and surrounded by darkness and hopelessness and fear may find provision in the camp and in the house of the enemy. You're a wonderful God. I love the way you do things and I love you, Lord. We just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.